Now, in our series, Good Together, we're in week two, and the reason we're doing this series is we're, we're doing it to discover God's plan for our relationships. The truth is, our relationships in life are either going to help us or they're going to hurt us. They're either going to grow us or they're going to grieve us. Now, most of us know this. Most of us know that the relationships in our life, the people we let in our life, determine the course of our life. You probably heard it said that your friends will determine your future. Well, the, the people that you associate with often affect your view, your perspective, the way you feel. It can affect your finances. It affects all those different things. Even though we know that, the truth is most of us, we don't have good tools to make our relationships better. I mentioned this last week that God's heart and God's plan would be that all of us have meaningful relationships. But if we're honest with ourselves, meaningful is not a word that most of us would use to describe our relationships. We have work associates, you know, we have some friends, but but not people that, that really know the, the things in our heart. And so I want to help you with that today. I want to help change and shift some of those things. And part of the problem is that's why we enter into relationships with wrong motives, misunderstandings, wrong expectations, because we don't have good tools. And, and the tools that we do have, we're going to the wrong places to get them. Now I'm going to warn you up front. Some of the things I'm going to say in this series will be different than things that you've heard. Might even be some things that you've never heard before, or it's going to be contrary to what you thought is good wisdom to make your relationship better. And here's the reason for that. This series is not designed to reinforce the values of culture. You don't need to come to church to know culture's wisdom on relationships. That's not why you come. We come because we want to know God's perspective. We get God's perspective by going to God's word. If you want to know culture's way of relationships, just ask your friends, your friends who are miserable, your friends that don't know Jesus, your, your, your friends that are in broken relationships. And there's nothing like a single person trying to give a married person advice on a relationship. Like, come on, you know what I'm talking about? So. The, the reality is that God's wisdom is often going to seem countercultural. And the reason for that is because we understand as Christians, there really are two kingdoms in the world. There's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. There's the culture of the world and there's the kingdom culture, the culture of heaven. And Jesus came to show us and bring the culture of heaven from heaven to here. Now, understand this. Jesus didn't just come so that we could get to heaven. Now, that is a very amazing part of salvation. Maybe the best part. It's a really incredible part. It's really, really good. But that's not the only thing. You have to understand that the way Jesus taught, his truth impacts how we live our lives right here. In other words, what I'm trying to say is if we know Jesus, we should be better friends. If we know Jesus, we should be a better spouse. If we know Jesus, we should be better parents, better children, better bosses, better employees, better leaders, better followers. Knowing Jesus, following the Bible should impact the way we live our life, should impact our relationships. That's God's plan. So what we're going to do is look to God's word today for his wisdom on relationships. And we're going to begin by looking at Jeremiah chapter 17. Now I did a little 
uh, review and I've discovered I've never preached on this passage in 11 years of ministry. Never gone to the book of Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 29, 11, we all know that one. But Jeremiah 17, we're maybe not so familiar with. And if you're kind of new to church, new to the Bible, new to scripture, here's what you need to know. Jeremiah was a prophet. What's that mean? A prophet was somebody who spoke God's word to the people. He spoke on behalf of God. And you wouldn't normally think of Jeremiah as a relationship book or looking to the book of Jeremiah for some relational wisdom, but it's actually really, really appropriate that we would look to Jeremiah because Jeremiah's primary role in speaking to Israel was to warn them about breaking their covenant with God. If you're not familiar with the word covenant, covenant is a Bible word, biblical word. It's a relational word. It's a word that describes a special relationship, a special agreement. Like we often don't think of the word covenant, but in church we call marriage a covenant. It's a special God honoring covenant between a man and a woman. Well, maybe if you're not familiar with that, you might think of a HOA covenant, right? But what that means is if you're going to be in this relationship, there are some regulations, there's some requirements, there's some expectations of what it means to be part of this. Well, Israel had and has a covenant with God and Jeremiah is speaking to them because they are breaking that covenant. Now, they didn't formally renounce that, saying, I don't want to be a part of this, but by their actions, everything they were doing was demonstrating that they no longer trusted him. And this is precisely what Jeremiah wants to address where we're reading in chapter 17. So if you brought your Bibles, you can follow along and start in verse five, but we'll put the words on the screen so we can all look together. This is what it says. This is what the Lord says. Bad things will happen to those who put their trust in people. So you're like, amen. That is why I don't do relationships and trust people. They will burn you. I'm just going to isolate myself. That's not what he's saying. I mean, most of us would agree trust is a primary and foundational element to have a good relationship. Well, what Jeremiah is talking about is it's where you put your trust to get wisdom, where you put your trust for, for help. He says bad things will happen to those who depend on human strength. In other words, human ability, human wisdom. That is because they've stopped trusting the Lord. So if you're depending on what the world has to offer when it comes to your relationships, it's not going to go well with you. Your trust has to be in God. He goes on to describe what it's like. He says, they're like a bush in the desert where no one lives. I really love this word picture. It's like you are alone in the desert, desperate and thirsty. Just tell somebody you look thirsty. And it's because you've been trusting not in God. It is in a hot and dry land. It is in bad soil. You've got a bad environment. That bush does not know about the good things that God can give. In other words, you, you're experiencing this because you don't know God has a better way. He says, but he gives the counter. He says, but those who trust in the Lord, these, these people will be blessed. They know what the Lord will do. They know what he says. They know that he'll do what he says. They, they'll be strong like trees planted near a stream. So before you're a bush, now if you trust in God, you're a tree 
strong. You send out roots to the water. It means your relationship, you'll be satisfied. You'll be refreshed. They'll have nothing to fear when the days get hot. It means you don't have to freak out when things get a little bit heated. It's all right. You're secure. Their leaves are always green. They're, they never worry. Even in the year that has no rain, they always produce fruit. Even when the environment is counterproductive, you can still be fruitful. So it says, so he, he, he sets this contrast up and then he says something very key. Verse nine says, more than anything else, a person's heart is deceitful and cannot be healed. Who can understand it? He answers in verse 10. He says, I can, I'm the Lord and I can look into a person's heart. I wanna use this text today to speak to you on the subject of trust issues. Trust issues. I won't ask the questions, anybody have trust issues? But trust issues. But I don't wanna speak about trusting people. I wanna speak about what it talks about in verse nine. Let's look at it one more time. Verse nine, he says, more than anything else, a person's heart is deceitful and cannot be healed. I want to speak to you about these issues of the heart. I think far too many of us have been trusting our heart on some issues and it's been setting us up for failure. This is why the worst relationship advice you will ever take and receive is this, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. You mean the part of me that's wicked? You mean the thing that is deceitful above all else? You, you, you mean the thing that is sick, that's incurable, that can't be healed? You want me to follow my heart? Just trust my gut? Thing can't even handle milk. Why would I trust that? The worst relationship advice that you can ever take is to follow your heart. And the reality is for many of us, we have adopted this idea that everything within me is pure. If I feel it, it must be true that my heart can never steer me wrong. And what scripture tells us is that your heart is deceitful. It cannot be trusted. And there are some issues that you've been trusting that is causing your relationships to fail. There are some things that our heart that has been telling us that we can't trust. It's hurting our relationships. It's impacting our effectiveness and it's preventing our potential because we're believing some things that aren't true. Now there's probably a number of them, but I have four of them that I've identified that I want to talk to you about today. And the first issue that we've been trusting that we need to deal with is this. I just need to be happy. I just need to be happy. When it comes to our relationships, we believe this lie, this issue that I just need to be happy. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Well, hold up, pastor. What's the alternative that I should be unhappy in my relationship? Is that what you're telling me? No, that's not what I'm suggesting. I think happiness is a good thing. 
I think your relationships should bring happiness. I mean, it's science, right? When you meet somebody and there's a connection, these endorphins go off in your brain and these endorphins make you happy. I get that. But what I am saying is where we failed is to elevate our personal happiness as the supreme value in a relationship. To, to say, to make our happiness, our personal happiness, the highest priority in a relationship will set you up for failure. Now, what might be interesting to note is that it hasn't always been this way. In our culture, personal happiness is our highest value in relationships. It wasn't always this way. You look to the ancient world, individual happiness in relationships was not even on the radar. Why is that? Because the important thing to them was what's best for the family, what's best for the community, what's best for the tribe. This thought was the purveying thought of why there's arranged marriages, why there was arranged marriages, right? Because you weren't doing it from personal happiness, you were doing it what's best for the family. Will it improve our community? Will it improve our standing? It's not your personal happiness, it's the community. Now, somewhere along the line, that changed. Would you like to know what changed it? Christianity. Christianity changed it. Why? Because for the longest time in the ancient world, this was a profane thought, but Christianity came along and said, hold up, the family is important, the community is important, but the individual is also important. Why? Because the individual is made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, the individual is important. And so the individual became elevated because the individual was an image and representative, was made in the image of God. Somewhere along the line that we've divorced these two concepts. We no longer wanted the individual just to be an important thing. We wanted individual happiness to be the main thing. And we separated that from God. And so now it's gone on so long, it's universally accepted. We no longer even bother to question whether or not this is true. We just believe it. And what's crazy is when you start drilling in to your happiness, what you discover is there's a lot of problems with this thinking. First thing is, is that your happiness is a moving target. Have you ever thought about that? Turned 40 years old a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. You know, what I want at 40 is not what I wanted at four. <laughs> what, I, what I wanted at 10 is not the same thing I wanted when I was 20. What I wanted at 20 is not the same thing I wanted when I was 30. When I was 30, it's not the same thing that I want now at 40. Your happiness is a moving target. What makes you happy one day won't necessarily make you happy tomorrow. And so when you put your happiness on somebody else's shoulders, you are setting them up for failure. That is a burden that nobody else can carry. Can't make you happy. You don't even know what makes you happy. The thing is, happiness is also in conflict with itself. Think about this. There's a couple, there, there's a lot of things that make me happy. One of the things that makes me happy, eating a hot and fresh Krispy Kreme donut. That makes me happy. You know what else makes me happy? 
this is theoretical. It hasn't actually happened. But theoretically, I think I would be really happy with a six-pack. <laughs> if I had a six-pack, I wouldn't even preach with a shirt on. I would just <laughs> come out here. That would make me happy. But those two things are in conflict with each other. When I'm pursuing one, by definition, I cannot pursue the other. I'm sorry for that image, by the way. I really try and be protective of that, but you know what makes me happy? Going on lots of vacations. You know what else makes me happy? Having money in my bank account. But I can't pursue those things simultaneously. So your happiness is in conflict with itself. And so if you say, I just need to be happy in your relationship, you're going to set yourself up for failure. I, I did a little study on this, and scientists say that when you really boil it down, happiness is about drive reduction. What do I mean by that? It means you have a need, you want to get it filled. You're hungry, so you eat food. That makes you happy. You're tired, so you take a nap. That makes you happy. You want something, so you do it. That makes you happy. At the end of the day, happiness is about driver. Happiness is about getting what you want. This is what science says. The only problem with that, that doesn't sound like happiness. That sounds like selfishness. And selfishness kills a relationship. So if you believe this lie that I just need to be happy, you're going to set yourself up for failure. Really, what you need, not that you shouldn't be happy, but what you need is to be committed. You need to be committed. That'll make your relationships work. There's another lie though that I want to get to. It's this one. We believe this lie, our heart tells us, this issue, the problem's with them. The problem's with them. Now, let's do a little unscientific poll. How many of you have some problem relationships in your life? You got, I'm not putting anybody else, but you got some problem. I've got some problem relationships. Some of them are in this room. It's the ones that aren't raising their hands when I ask a question. <laughs> problem relationships, you got to get that one in your mind. You got some problem with it. Okay. You can think of that problem relationship. How many of you know all the things wrong with them? Right? They're too grumpy. They're too moody. They're too, some of your spouses are elbowing each other. Would you stop that, please? You're, you know, you're too selfish. They're too needy. They're too boring. Like, whatever it is, we've got these lists of things. We can identify all of their problems. And it's easy to imagine the ways that relationship would be better, whether it's friendship, marriage, whatever, family member. It's easy to imagine the way our relationship would be better if they would change. We got the list on what they're doing wrong. But it might be helpful for us to remember that even the perfect situation isn't perfect. Even if they changed everything on their list and they were perfect, it still would not be perfect. We have an example of this in scripture, by the way. We looked at them last week, but think about Adam and Eve. If there was anybody who could say they had the perfect partner, it would be Adam and Eve. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, somebody who was made suitable just for me. Perfect. 
Let, let's think about the Genesis account, right? God made Adam and Eve, blessed them. They were happy, gave them a mission. They were in the garden. They were in paradise. I didn't actually read this verse last week, but I thought today would be a good one to, a, a good time to introduce it. In Genesis 2.25, you might want to highlight this in your Bible, write it down, put it on your fridge. It's a great one. This is what it says. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Glory to God on high. It's a good verse. Think about this. God gives them a mission. They're happy. They're blessed. They're content. They're fulfilled. They're satisfied. They are literally in paradise, naked, with no kids. How do you mess that up? But they did. <laughs> what happens? Satan comes on the scene, creates division. And if you know what Genesis goes on to tell us, God came, starts questioning Adam, not because he doesn't know the answer, but he wants Adam to recognize the answer. Adam, what happened? Adam says, ah, it's a woman. The perfect woman, the, it's her fault. Goes to Eve. Eve, what's the problem? It's the serpent. That's the problem. Everyone is blaming someone. No one is taking responsibility. And here's what you need to understand. I bring this up because we've been taught that we're the product of our environment. And if our situation was different, if the person was different, the relationship would be better. Look, environment matters 100% definitely takes two in a relationship. But if we're not careful, we'll put the emphasis on someone else to make the relationship work. And you can turn the right one into a wrong one if you don't deal with your own issues. Healthy relationships start with healthy individuals. Healthy relationships are sustained by healthy individuals. That means that you've got your own issues too. And if you don't address your past wounds, your next relationship will. Because relationships don't erase problems, they expose them. So maybe, instead of thinking you need a different person, maybe what you should realize is that you need a different strategy. Different strategy, because the strategy that we're using tells us this third lie. This one, this should be easy. This should be easy. Understand, just because it's work doesn't make it wrong. It's worth pointing out that just because you're good together doesn't mean that it's always easy together. There's not a good husband gene. There, there's not a perfect wife chromosome. There's not an easy friend factor or a functional family genome. It doesn't exist. And I'm not trying to suggest to you that we should just plunge ourselves into problems or, you know, intermesh ourselves with any kind of dysfunction. Look, I get it. not everybody's a mesh with your personality. That's okay. You get along with some people better than others. That's okay. What I'm trying to point out is that will enjoy our relationships to the level of our effort. What we put into them really is what we get out of them. 
I did some research on this and uh, this idea of what is it that makes a relationship work? It's not easy. So what is it that makes it work? What I discovered, I was not the first person to ask this question. There's actually been thousands of studies trying to diagnose and dissect just what is it exactly that makes a relationship work. The University of Illinois, a number of years ago, they took 1,100 different studies since 1950 that have been done on what makes a relationship work. And they took them two years to synthesize all of the data. And when they boiled it all down, they were able to, to split the techniques people use to keep their relationships going into really two motives, basically two different approaches. One is to promote the positive. The other is to protect against the negative. That's pretty basic. You're like, man, that seems way too simple. That's a great study. And I'm not trying to insult anybody. I just, I could have saved them a little bit of time because scripture has said this in Proverbs. It's not in my notes, but you maybe want to write it down. Proverbs 4.23, this is what it says. Guard your heart because it determines the course of your life. In other words, look, we can't trust our heart, but we are given two directives. We have to guard our heart against the negative, and we have to guide our heart towards the positive. You're not supposed to follow your heart. You're supposed to follow Jesus. You're not supposed to follow your heart. You're supposed to direct it. You're supposed to guide it. So you, you guard against the negative. You guide towards the positive. And I know this is going to sound simple, but there's something that you have to understand in your relationships is that the closer you are, the greater the opportunity. What do I mean? The closer you are, the greater opportunity for intimacy but the closer you are, the greater opportunity for injury. That's why no one can make you mad like someone you really love. No one can hurt you like someone that you've given your heart to. And what I want you to see is when things are hard, maybe it's not that things are wrong. Maybe it's just that you care. Sometimes the people that are the most critical in your life are the people that actually care the most in your life. I'm not saying it's effective or even that it's okay. I'm just trying to help you identify what it is. That's why if you really want to improve your relationship, if you really want to protect against the negative and promote the positive, to guard against the negative and guide it towards the positive, there are three words you need to get really good at saying. Three words that will help your relationships. And these three words are not the three words you're thinking. They are not the words, I love you. They are the words, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I love you might declare your love, but forgive me demonstrates your love. Now forgiveness is not, it's not always easy but it is always effective because forgiveness restores the rightness in your relationship. And a lot of our relationships would actually be easier if we realized it's not my job to fix them. It's my job to forgive them. It's a different strategy.
It's a different strategy. But I want to close with this last lie, and I need to bring this one up because th there's a danger with some of the stuff I've said. And here's the last lie that our heart will tell us, that I'm too broken to have something good. I'm too broken to have something good. See, the, the danger of listing out these lies is that probably most of us can identify the fact that we've had some trust issues, trusting these issues in our heart. Yep, I've prioritized my happiness as the highest value. Thought the problem is with them. It's not easy, so I didn't want to make it work at all. And we see all these things we've done and think, you know what? I've messed stuff up. I, I, I've damaged my relationships and my situations beyond repair. It's my fault. And I've come to realize that there's really two kinds of broken hearts. There's the, the condition of our heart, that it's wicked, deceitful, broken, sick, incurable, cannot be healed, it's broken. But then there's what happens when we enter into relationships, trusting this broken heart. We get broken, again, personally broken. And at the end of all of it is this idea, I'm too broken to have a good relationship. I'm too damaged. I'm not good enough. That's actually the tagline for every broken heart. I'm not good enough. Every time I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough, not rich enough, not wise enough. I'm not patient enough, I'm not fun enough, I'm not good enough. I'm not enough, just that enough. And if you've ever felt that way in a relationship, I wanted to give you some hope today because there's another time in scripture where some people felt they weren't enough, didn't have enough. It's with the disciples and Jesus. You might know the story. Jesus was preaching and teaching. There were thousands of people. He'd preached for a long time and he had compassion on wanted to give them something to eat. And he told the disciples to feed them and they said, hey, it's a great idea, Jesus, but we don't have enough. He said, let me get this right. I'm asking you to do something, but you tell me you don't have enough. Yeah, we don't have enough. It's impossible. Not enough. So well, well, what do you have? Well, they kind of looked around, scrounged around a little bit. They said, hey, well, we've got, we've got five loaves and two fish. I said, okay. Well, even though what you have is not enough, I want you to bring it to me. Put it in my hands. They brought it, they placed their not enough in Jesus' hands. He blessed it and something really interesting happened. It says he broke it and he didn't break it one time, but he broke it again and he broke it again. And each time he broke it, it says that it was multiplied in the breaking. So what I realized is that perhaps it's true that before you place yourself in Jesus' hands, you're not enough. But if you will take your not enough, 
put it in his hands, allow him to bless it, then even the breaking can be a blessing. Recognize that even the broken things, the broken times, the broken experiences can actually be something that can grow you. That when you place your life and your heart in Jesus' hands, that the breaking can actually be something that makes you better. I know it sounds counterintuitive because we often think, man, my life would be so much better if I never had to deal with heartbreak, if I was never broken from financial mistakes, if I was never fractured by family drama, if I never had to deal with dysfunction, if I never had to deal with brokenness. But what we fail to realize is that in Jesus' hands, the breaking can make us better. Paul actually wrote about this in Romans. He says, not only is that true, but we are very happy in our troubles because we know that trouble makes us stronger. There are some things that can only happen by heartbreak. There are some places you can only get to by pain. And it might not be pleasant, but they're crucial for you to experience God's power. When you place yourself in God's hands, even the worst done to you can bring the best out of you. I'm not saying that it's okay. I'm not saying that it's good. I'm just saying God can use it. And so I wanted to end this message for everybody here who's felt broken. Maybe some broken relationships, maybe some broken experience. Maybe you've just felt in your heart, you're broken. I wanted to invite you to put that in God's hands today. And that'd be the first invitation. Say, God, I've got some brokenness in my life. I've got some broken relationships, some broken experiences, but I want to place it in your hands so that you can bless it. So you can take it, multiply what you want to do in my life, use it to make me better, God.